Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Friday, December 4th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. The latest in deep sea luxury tourism. The story of a guy who just found out this week that he's been a meme for years. The fascinating geometry of Pringles. And an actually kind of sweet story about the polio vaccine. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. We hear a lot about space tourism, but what about deep sea tourism? Well, submarine company Triton is trying to make it a thing. They're the company behind the DSV limiting factor, aka the deep sea elevator that takes people down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, and also a number of other commercial, professional, and leisure submersibles. Earlier this year, they made headlines with their Deep View 24, the first in their line of tourist submarines that can accommodate between 12 and 66 tourists on trips of 100-meter depths with panoramic views of the ocean. Those submersibles are marketed at companies who want to host tours, but now Triton has introduced what they call leisure submersibles aimed at more independent families and groups of friends. All of Triton's submersibles have a strong design aesthetic that is so sleek, it almost makes it tough to remember what an incredible feat of science they truly are, in part because they look so much like what we've seen in sci-fi movies for years and years, so you kind of forget that it hasn't existed before. Their latest model, the 3300-6, so named because it can go to depths of 3300 feet and seats 6 people, is essentially a big spherical bubble with some motors on the side and back, featuring air conditioning and ergonomic seats. The bubble is the world's largest spherical acrylic pressure hole. According to Triton, it's quote, optically perfect, distortion-free, and completely colorless, and it was made possible by Triton's exclusive partnership with the world's leading acrylic fabricator based in Germany, end quote. Five of the seats get to take in that incredible view, while the sixth is shoved in the back as the pilot. Quoting New Atlas, It's not very fast, not that you'd expect it to be. Two main thrusters and two Vertran thrusters peak at 12.5 kilowatts each, offering a relatively intuitive joystick and touchscreen piloting experience with a 3-knot, or 3.45 miles per hour, top speed. So, you will be overtaken by fish, but on the other hand, you'll probably see more fish if you bumble along slowly than if you hoon around like some sort of underwater jet ski rider. Unless they all hide behind rocks to get away from the six or more banks of 20,000 lumen LEDs you're blasting in their eyes. This is a serious piece of kit weighing some 11,000 kilograms or 24,300 pounds and measuring 4.55 meters or 14.9 feet long. But Triton points out that it can be launched and recovered using standard tender lift gear, making it the only submersible rated for 1,000 meter depths that can make such a claim. End quote. Pricing isn't mentioned anywhere on the site, but I think it's pretty safe to assume that it's one of those experiences where only people rich enough not to worry about the price will actually be able to afford it. Still, it's cool to see the innovations coming out of this company with the hope that, you know, maybe one day us plebes will be able to afford the experience of deep sea tourism as well. So one of my favorite ongoing series to watch on YouTube is from BuzzFeed called I Accidentally Became a Meme. 
They track down folks whose images started proliferating without their knowledge and interview them about where the image first came from, how they found out it became a meme, and what's happened since. And the stories really vary. You know, folks like Kombucha Girl and Overly Attached Girlfriend both turned the popularity of their accidental meme into successful online careers. Others, like Ermagerd Goosebumps Girl, are pretty much just living a normal life, but have had a few wild encounters. The success kid, you know, the baby on the beach with a fistful of sand looking like he just did his best kip from Napoleon Dynamite, yes! <laughs> All of these are very tough to describe without visuals, but you'd know them immediately if you saw them, so I'm going to put a link to the BuzzFeed series in the show notes so that you can get a visual on these different memes that I'm talking about. But anyways, when Success Kid was a little bit older, he ended up using his meme status to raise money for a life-saving surgery for his dad. And one of the stories that blows my mind the most is the meme of that blonde-haired guy just kind of blinking in astonishment. Sometimes it's a gif, sometimes it's a still image. It blows my mind because it turns out that that was just from a couple of frames from a tiny crop of a two-hour-long livestream in a niche video game community that was doing weekly livestreams, and for which tons of GIFs were always made. But somehow, and not even immediately, not until four years later, that particular GIF found its way beyond that niche community to the rest of the internet and has since become one of the most popular reaction images online. That's what's especially wild about these stories to me. Not so much how it impacts someone's life afterwards, although that's fascinating too and leads to lots of questions about personal intellectual property and stuff, but just the absolute randomness and kind of chaos theory, as Blinking White Guy calls it, of how it happens. And this morning, I came across the birth of one of these stories on Twitter. It's not anywhere on the scale of Success Kid or Bad Luck Brian, but on Tuesday, natural scientist Dr. Adrian Smith posted on Twitter, quote, Here's a very 2020 thing I just learned about myself. This picture of the eight-year-old third-grade version of me has been a meme for years. Like, there's merch and everything. Internet is weird, end quote. With the tweet, he shared a photo of his third-grade school picture, complete with that classic early 90s laser background in unfortunate but era-accurate butt-cut hairdo and some pre-braces front teeth that it looks like he eventually grew into. So about three years ago, a comedian and artist who goes by Teenage Stepdad got a hold of the picture and turned it into an ongoing gag about his fake stepson Grayson. There are countless recreations with weird intersecting storylines and even a whole line of merch for Teenage Stepdad. Now, while I can't find much evidence that it has gone substantially beyond Teenage Stepdad's community, it seems like a hugely popular joke within his fairly sizable following. And maybe it's just because it's such a typical school photo from that era, but I do feel like I have seen this photo in some meme before. Dr. Smith says he doesn't know Teenage Stepdad and has never spoke to him. He only discovered his photo was being used when it came up on his Instagram stories the other day. And as for how a photo that for years only existed on the wall of his grandmother's house became a quasi-meme without his knowledge, Dr. Smith says that in about 2008, he submitted the photo to a laser portrait-themed Tumblr called We Have Lasers. And it's apparently been proliferating in ways large and small online ever since. 
And that's kind of the story with most people who became memes. Only a rare few of them stumbled into meme status with something they intentionally put online themselves. So many origin stories of memes are from people who posted a photo somewhere innocuous like Flickr, only for it to be discovered, repurposed, and posted by a stranger, and before long, take on a life of its own in a way that eventually affects the real life of the person in question. Living in New York City, especially before the pandemic, I often thought about just how many photos I must be in the background of without having any idea. Now, I wonder how many of us have become quasi-memes within niche online communities without knowing it. If it happens to you one day, what will you do? Once you pop, you can't stop. Meant to be a chip for the future, one that would solve consumer complaints about broken, greasy potato chips in bags, Pringles were developed by chemists at Procter & Gamble in the mid-20th century using a tubular can instead of a bag and their recognizable saddle shape to try to offset the breakage and staleness that plagued chips of their time. Now, while they don't stand out as much among other chip innovations these days, and their tubes have proven to be one of the hardest consumer products to recycle, Pringles are still a unique and tempting chip choice. I'm partial to the salt and vinegar ones myself. And part of what makes Pringles so special is that saddle shape, also known as a hyperbolic paraboloid. In addition to fitting perfectly in your mouth, the hyperbolic paraboloid design enables a whole bunch of Pringles to be stacked on top of each other in the tube without the bottom ones being crushed under the weight. How? Quoting Interesting Engineering, the hyperbolic paraboloid's intersecting double curvature prevents a line of stress from forming, which doesn't encourage a crack to naturally propagate. That's why Pringles have that extra crunch in them when you either bite a piece off or when you put a whole Pringle in your mouth. If you frequently eat Pringles, you would know that they never break off symmetrically, but instead, they crack in different directions and produce flakes with varying shapes. It's all due to the hyperbolic paraboloid geometry of each chip. Moreover, the two opposing curves perform well together under tension and compression, which give each Pringle some structural strength despite their relatively thin shape. End quote. And while this geometrical sturdiness is sound enough to be used in some roof construction designs, Pringles are helped along by the fact that the net weight of all the Pringles stacked on top in the tube never exceeds 150 grams. Plus, the tube itself was designed to prevent a lot of the damage that's incurred by more fragile bags. Despite the impressive engineering behind their design, however, Pringles never became king as the chip of the future. For one, chip brand competitors and even London's High Court and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration say that Pringles aren't even really chips, since as part of their original design to try to become, as they were once called, newfangled chips, they're actually made of potato-based dough and not sliced straight from potatoes. Ah, Pringles, all you wanted to do was create the perfect potato chip of the future. Perhaps you flew too close to the sun. Ending the week with a purely sweet story. Vaccines are all over the news and high on our minds right now, so I wanted to share a quick, lighthearted story about the polio vaccine. I know, polio, not a lighthearted topic, but stick with me here. 
So I've seen polio mentioned a lot since the news of successful vaccine candidates have been announced, mostly in discussions about people who are skeptical about taking these new vaccines or about the anti-vax crowd in general. One theory that I've heard is that a reason some people might be able to fear the vaccines more than the diseases they prevent is because the vaccines did their job. Those diseases were more or less eradicated. You know, we don't see the horror and tragedy of diseases like polio anymore. And maybe if anti-vaccine-leaning people did see that, or if they spent more time talking to older people still living who lost siblings or became disabled from polio themselves, they'd remember why the vaccines were invented in the first place and why they're so important. And with that in mind, people have been sharing their stories about polio and about the difference it made when the vaccine came out. A lot of those, as you can imagine, are really tough and heavy stories to read, though all the more important because they are. But as promised, I wanted to share one of the more lighthearted accounts that has been making the rounds on the internet this week. It comes from a man named Jeffrey Sherman, the son of Robert Sherman of the Sherman Brothers, the pair behind a ton of the songs in Disney musicals. They wrote the songs for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, The Jungle Book, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and you have them to thank for It's a Small World After All. Sorry. Son Jeffrey posted this on Facebook on Tuesday, and I'm just going to read the whole thing for you. Quote, When I was a kid, they rolled out the vaccine for polio. We were given it at school on a sugar cube. I went home, and my dad, who was working on Mary Poppins, asked how my day was. What I didn't know was that Julie Andrews, who was hired to play Mary, had not really liked the song my dad and uncle had written, Through the Eyes of Love, and it was rejected. It was their favorite song for the movie. Walt asked the Sherman brothers to come up with a new song that would be in line with Mary's slash Julie's philosophy. Dad asked me how my day was, and I told him about getting the polio vaccine at school. I was known for rejecting the booster shots at my doctor's office and running away. He said, didn't it hurt? I told him that they put it on a sugar cube and you just ate it. He stared at me, then went to the phone and called my Uncle Dick. They went back to the office and wrote, A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. It's my little corner of film music history, I suppose, inadvertently. For anyone I know here on Facebook, trust the doctors. When the vaccine for COVID comes out, get it. We are all codependent on each other in this pandemic. Trust science and doctors and epidemiologists. We are a small world, and we will beat this enemy if we listen to those who know. Be safe, wear a mask, be kind and thoughtful and considerate to your fellow man and woman. We will beat this. End quote. That is all for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I am going to go do a reverse image search of myself to double-check if I'm actually a meme. I hope you have a great weekend, and I will talk to you again on Monday.